Good evening. It's time for us to uh, go ahead and get started tonight, if we can, please. It's a joy to see you here tonight. It's Wednesday evening, and it's spring break week, and we have a lot of people that are gone uh, this week, but we are glad that you're here tonight, and we are honored to have guests with us, and uh, we hope that you'll come back anytime that you can. We'll meet together this coming Sunday morning. Uh, for worship at 9.30, and we'll have excellent Bible classes for all ages on Sunday evening at 5, and it would be an honor to have you with us on those occasions. I hope you uh, picked up a bulletin on your way in. If not, please do so. It's got a lot of information there uh, that will benefit you. Uh, in addition to those that are listed on the sick list in the bulletin, we're glad that Lynn Barragona is at Landmark Rehab. Uh, but she's going to be in isolation until Friday, but she is undergoing rehab and she is improving. Also, uh, uh, Caitlin, I can't, I can't even read it, Chun, this is uh, Dale and Emily Kendrick's daughter, had successful uh, gallbladder surgery today, and she's at home and doing well. We're thankful for that. I understand that Brother Chuck is homesick tonight. He's got the crud that's going around, and uh, we want to remember him in our prayers. Uh, please check the bulletin for all the Lads to Leaders information that's going to be taking place on Sunday. And just to emphasize, our monthly youth devotional for March has been canceled. There's a lot of scheduling conflicts that are taking place with that. And it's almost time for our annual Easter egg hunt. That'll be on Sunday, March the 26th, and we need lots of candy uh, stuffed uh, plastic eggs are needed and uh, please remember that each family is asked to bring uh, these and place them in a barrel in the foyer also we are happy we want to congratulate uh, Ray and Angie Mason on the birth of their grandson Weston Reese uh, Rose uh, born to Cameron and uh, Holly on March 8th in Birmingham, the great-grandmother Sue Mason. Also, we want to congratulate Luther and Joan Mormon in the birth of their granddaughter, uh, Nana Jo Godfrey. She was born to Jonathan and Madison on March the 2nd. Also, remember our food pantry drive for the Boonville Middle School. Uh, the containers are back in the foyer, and there's a list there of things that you can bring. Also, for our new church directory, we need you to fill out one of those family information sheets and turn that in so we can have an accurate uh, information about you uh, in the directory. Also, the senior rally uh, for our Golden Circles coming up on March the 25th. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet in the foyer. If you would like to attend that, we'll leave at 8.30. It's up in Henderson, Tennessee, and uh, it'll be a great event, especially with Dan Winkler being the speaker, so we'd love to take a, a good number there. Uh, also, tomorrow is our food pantry and clothes closet uh, from 9 until 10.30. We'd love for you to come and help if you would like to do that. For our devotional tonight, uh, Brother Anthony Acock is going to be leading our singing, and our uh, closing prayer will be led by the Todd English. Let's now enter into our song service. Mark number 904, 904 for the invitation.
then turn to number 801, 
occupy our time. I saw a news report that said that the average teenager today spends some four and a half hours on social media a day. But there's more to life than those kinds of things. Instead, as a Christian, our purpose is that of serving God faithfully. And faithfulness to God requires a strong resolve on our part to put him first in our lives. See, it's not enough just to become a Christian. That's just the beginning. That's just the start of living a life for God. The Lord has to be first in our hearts and in our lives if we're going to be true followers of his. We quote the verse all the time of Matthew 6, that says, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's true. I think the Macedonians had it right when the Bible says about them in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 5 that they first gave themselves to the Lord. You see, that's the one gift that makes every other gift possible. We have to first give ourselves to the Lord. And so the Lord's only satisfied when he get, we give him the preeminence in our heart and in our lives. And the Bible commands us to, to live a life worthy of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation 1 and verse 5. And if we love the Lord, then certainly that's going to lead us to faithful Christian living. And so as we sing this song of encouragement tonight, I, I just want to ask you to think about your life. Are you meeting that challenge? Are you making a, a positive difference for the Lord here upon this earth among your peers, your associates? Can other people look at your life and can they see Christ living in you? Maybe tonight you've never obeyed the gospel. You've never yet made that commitment, that decision. Tonight may be the time that you need to do that. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God with all of your heart and you're willing to repent of your sins and confess him as the Son of God, you can be baptized tonight, immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And so tonight, the invitation is yours. If you're subject to it, you're invited to come now while we stand and sing.
895. We'll sing the first verse of this after our closing prayer. As the teacher goes to class. Let us pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we bow before you today thanking you for the many blessings of this life. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son to die on the cruel cross of Calvary that we may have a home in heaven with thee. Lord, I ask that you be with those that are sick, those that are unable to be here tonight. Lord, because we know that you are the great physician. You are the one that comforts. You are the I am. Lord, I ask that you just be with each and every one of us here, be with the Bible class teachers, and give them the words that you would have us to hear. Lord, most importantly, we thank you that you are a washer of the feet, not a thrower of stones. And Lord, please allow us to live our lives according to that. Lord, I ask that you watch over us, guide us, and forgive us of our many sins. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'd like to stay here longer than Well, good evening once again to everyone. I'm very honored to uh, be here with you all and to be able to be in your presence once again. We will be in Romans chapter 6 this evening, Romans chapter 6, and we'll begin there here momentarily as we continue in our study of that great epistle. And for those of you, again, that may be watching and viewing online. We are happy to have you here as well. And as always, we hope that you will find opportunity and see it fit and proper to come and visit with us face to face and in person as well. Uh, as always, before we 
begin our study, I would like to take a moment or two and just bow and have a, a word of prayer. Uh, Jim, would you mind to lead us in that? Our loving Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we can be here tonight to study from this epistle. We pray that you would be with Adam as he directs our study. We know that we have several that are sick. We especially ask your care to be with Lynn Barragona as she goes through rehab. We pray that that would be totally successful and should be quickly restored to us. We uh, pray that you'd be with uh, Caitlin as she recovers from her surgery. We pray that that would be complete as well. We love you, Father. We pray that you would help us to glean from this lesson things that would help us to be better Christians. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. So when we covered chapter 5 last week, uh, you'll recall that in that section that Paul goes into some detail. They're contrasting uh, more so than comparing Adam and Jesus, and the conclusion there being that in one, Adam, there's death, that is spiritual death, in the other, being Christ, that there is life. And then he ends that, if you recall in verse 20, and he says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So when we come here to chapter 6, Paul is going to continue on this thought when we look at verses 1 through 14, uh, when we look at this concept of going from spiritual death to life. And he puts this in the form of a rhetorical question, what shall we say then, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. So what Paul is asking them here, and the answer to that, of course, is a resounding no. He goes on to say, certainly not. Other translations will uh, render that God forbid. Uh, this is a phrase that will appear some, if I'm counting right, I believe about 10 times uh, throughout the book of Romans. So it's something that we need to pay attention to. But the reason that he's asking that is because of the statements that he makes in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5. What he's doing is he's anticipating what some might say. So they might take his statement, uh, where sin abounded, grace abounded more, and they might draw the conclusion that, well, if I sin, then I'm covered by grace. Now, of course, that obviously is not what Paul is teaching here. What he is teaching is that for the Christian, that in God's grace, that there is forgiveness for when we do sin. But we also need to understand that there is a difference, a vast difference between coming short from time to time versus willful or deliberate sinning. A big difference. And we'll talk 
more about that. So he goes on, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That spiritual death, that is, as he's going to say here, putting away or putting off that old man. He's asking them why would they want to continue to live in a state of sin that brings death, as he has already established, rather than the joyful, confidential life that we can live being alive in Christ. Or, verse 3, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So there when he says that phrase, as many of us, he's talking to the church, he himself a member of the church. So that's who we need to understand that he's being addressed, So is addressing. So when he says, as many of us as have been, been baptized into Christ, he's establishing already that that is the point at, one, at which one is united with Christ and reconciled back to God. So how are we baptized into his death? He's making an analogy. As Christ died physically on the cross, so it is for us spiritually that when we decide to be united with him, we die in the sense that we put off, put away our previous sinful state and live a life of faithfulness. Verse 4, he's going to draw a conclusion. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism. So there's the death, the burial, as he was placed in Joseph's tomb. We too are buried, so to speak, through the action of baptism. And it's easy to understand, I think we can all understand this, is as a very general rule of thumb, we do not bury one physically who is still alive. Again, he's talking about spiritual death here. That just as Christ was raised from the dead, there's the resurrection, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus on the third day, by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You see the parallel that he's drawing here. The physical death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. We mirror that, so to speak, in our submission to the gospel. We die in that we put off our previous way of living. We're buried in the sense that we are immersed. We're resurrected in the sense that we come out of that a new person. 
a transformative life that we begin to live. And as time allots, God willing, when we get to chapter 12, we'll talk a little bit more about that transformation. All right, so he continues, verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, so there it is, there's the uniting. So how are we united with Christ in his death? Death, burial, resurrection. Absolutely, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, there Paul expounds on that some with uh, his letter to Corinth. Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, how are we in the likeness of his resurrection? Now again, in mind here, the New King James, that phrase in the likeness of his resurrection is italicized. That is adding clarity on the part of the translators. Knowing this, well, what do we know? That our old man was crucified with him. Now, this is a phrase that is used elsewhere, or similar concept. Paul uses it in his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians 5 and verse 24. And Peter speaks of it in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 18. All right, so there we, there we have that. So revisiting for just a moment what he addressed at the beginning, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? To willfully sin is to abuse the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And what I told about this or said about this last quarter when I was completing or teaching this uh, in the annex was that freedom from sin is not a license to sin. I'll say it again. Freedom from sin is not license to sin. And for that, I would uh, give you for reference Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. And that will clear up this concept of willful sinning. And I would also give you uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 and verses 8 and 9 as well. And there... John talks about what? How we can know if we are in Christ. And the distinction is whether or not we continue to willfully sin. And that's the distinction. So as we continue here, he goes on to say that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. That is, there's a death and a complete annihilation of that. That we should no longer be slaves. Other translations will say servants of sin from the Greek. It's the same word, same concept. Whether we realize it or not, 
in this life and whatever relationship we're talking about, we serve someone or something. In the spiritual context, especially here, what Paul implies by this statement is that if we're not serving Christ, if we're not a servant of Christ, then we are a servant of sin or vice versa. We can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. 4 verse 7, He who has died has been freed from sin. There's our freedom from sin. Now if we died with Christ, here comes our confidence, we believe that we shall also live with him. And we see that elsewhere. Luther uh, mentioned just a moment or two ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, there and more specifically on that, I'll give you uh, verses 20 through 22 and verses 50 through 57. There when Paul teaches that in his defense of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And he speaks of it as well in his first letter to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18. Uh, so we see that very clearly established. So, knowing that, what's, the, what's that? Knowing what? That Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. That is, Jesus in the flesh died one time. One time. So what does that mean for us? For those that remain faithful to him. Then of necessity, we also are going to live as he lived. Now the difference being, when physical death comes, we're not going to be bodily or physically resurrected as Jesus was. That is one difference. But in the spiritual context, as our soul and as our spirit lives on, we are going to be in his presence, as he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, to forever be with the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of encouragement and a lot of confidence. So as we continue, here he's going to go on. Death, the end of verse 10, no longer has dominion over him. Jesus conquered death. Physically, in the sense that he arose again, but also spiritually, in that sin became he came and he died because of our sins or for our sins taking that upon himself we no longer have to be servants of sin 
we have that freedom in the sense that we serve Christ. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, another conclusion, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, I want to talk just a moment about verse 14. There are some that will see that statement, for, sin, uh, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, we've already addressed this before, but it bears repeating Paul is not teaching that there is no law. What he is alluding to, and we'll see this when we get into chapter 7 next week, God willing, he's beginning to make a contrast between the old covenant, the law of Moses, and the new covenant, the law of Christ. Under the law of Moses, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that there was no forgiveness of sins. There is under the law of Christ. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. He's talking about the forgiveness that is available in and through Jesus. So I wanted to clear that up. And furthermore on that, we also need to consider this. In order for there to be grace, chapter 5 he establishes that there is sin. Well, if there's no grace, then there's no sin. And Jesus came and died and resurrected in vain. That does not make any sense. So instead of trying to force or to inject things into the text that are not there, instead, let's take it for what it says. And if we can do that, we can clear up a whole lot of confusion. Again, I'll refer you back to 2 Peter chapter 3. Verses 17 and 18. All right, do we have any questions or comments on verses 1 through 14? Okay, we'll continue on. Uh, he's going to pick up here in verse 15, and we'll go on through the end of the text, verse 23, and looking at this idea of being servants or slaves to Christ. What then, shall we sin 
because we're not under law but under grace? There's our phrase again, certainly not. So he's asking in essence the same rhetorical question that he asked in the beginning of our text. Because again, he's anticipating what some may try to argue. Arguing, that is, that they might, that because there is God's grace, then it's okay for us to sin. Because when we sin, we have grace, and grace forgives us. And sadly, there are a lot of people, even to this day, who use that line of reasoning. But that is not what the scriptures teach, not here, not anywhere for that matter. Again, I think back to Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. And while we have a little bit of time left, let's go ahead, turn there and look at that. Do we have someone that would be willing to volunteer to read that for us? Uh, 26 through 31, Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All right. Thank you, Jeremy. Do you notice what's said here again, staying in Hebrews 10 for just a moment, then we'll come back to Romans 6. There the penman, who, Paul or whoever he may be, is contrasting, again, the law of Moses. He refers there to the law, the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's referring to... Uh, capital punishment for offenses such as adultery, murder, things of that nature. So what he's telling them is that, notice 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy? So the contrast there being is that this would be even worse. Now again, what's this context? Christians who had converted from the Jewish faith that were perhaps starting to drift away from that. So he's encouraging and admonishing them to continue in their faith. And he's showing them how much worse it's going to be for them if they turn away from it than if they had never obeyed it in the first place. And that's what Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 3. So we need to think very carefully and very soberly about these things. So when we come back to Romans chapter 6, Paul is going to continue 
uh, in this discourse. So he's going to ask them in verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves, slaves to obey, you are, the, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. What is that sin leading to death? I contend that it's any sin of which one remains in which he will not repent. The sin leading to death. Or of obedience, that is obedience to Christ and the gospel message leading to righteousness, being in a right or proper standing before God. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, notice he's speaking here in the past tense, were slaves of sin. He doesn't say you are or you will be, not present, not future, but past. Yet you obeyed, there's the past tense, from the heart, that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Obeyed from the heart, that is, acting in faithful submission to what they had heard. Acting in faith. Remember chapter 4. The example of Abraham. Verse 3 and 4, that form of doctrine. It would be the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Paul uh, tells the Corinthians that this is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, so Luther is correct. Uh, you can refer back to 3 and 4 for that, and that's the other. <coughs> A great example of the scriptures being its best commentary. So when we follow the context, we can clear up a lot of confusion. And having been set free from sin, that is, you were slaves of the sin that leads to death, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. That is, we have a limited understanding of things. He's not saying this to belittle or to insult them, and certainly not us. But we as human beings, we have a finite mind and a limited understanding. And so sometimes it's necessary to speak in terms that we can understand. That's why Jesus spoke so much in parables. Uh, for example, because the, those were images that those hearing could relate to. And that, in essence, is what Paul is doing here. For just as you presented your members, he's speaking of the flesh or the body, as slaves of uncleanness, that is sin, and of lawlessness, that is sin, leading to more lawlessness, more sin on top. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. 
Now let's think a little bit more in the time we have remaining about this concept of being slaves or servants of righteousness versus slaves to sin. Now in both cases, you have one that is over you, the servant of sin, you have Satan, the servant of Christ, obviously Jesus. The difference is this. One will lead us to a path of de eternal destruction. The other will lead us to a path of eternal life. Death and life. For when you were slaves of sin, there's our past tense again, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. He's telling them that it bore no useful fruit. What was it that Jesus said to do with the trees that bear no fruit? What's that again? Cut them down and what? Cast them into the fire. Paul is telling the Romans here that there was no benefit, nothing conducive about their previous way of living. And notice he says, of the things of which you are now ashamed. Let's think about that for just a moment. Of all of the issues and problems that are plaguing our culture right now, what, at least speaking for myself, what disturbs me more than even those acts themselves is how flippant so many people are about it. Not only are they doing these things, they're openly flaunting it in front of us. And if that's not bad enough, if not already, I promise you at some point, those things are going to begin making their way in some way into the Lord's body. That's why we have so many warnings about false doctrines and false teachings and the lust of the flesh. Is because we too, if we are not careful, if we're not vigilant, we are going to be susceptible to these things. So we really need to think about that. There should be shame in sin. There absolutely should be. That's something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. 
but that's biblical. For the end of those things is death. The end of what things? Those things of which you were ashamed. Had they continued in those things, that is where they would have been led, is unto death. But, here's the contrast, 22, now having been set free from sin and becoming slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. What's that fruit? I picture, in my mind, I picture a fruit tree or a vine of some sort in a garden that is healthy, it's flourishing, and it's producing what it is intended to produce. In the life of a Christian, we too are to produce fruits. Paul talks a little bit about those in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 24 what we typically call the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, uh, meekness, self-control, and so forth. He goes on to say what? Against such there is no law. Living, going, and again, we can contrast this with the flesh versus the Spirit. He's telling them that they had lived for the flesh, but they are now living in the Spirit. That is following God's will by submitting to it. And that too should be our desire. And the end, what is the end of that? Everlasting life. You notice that contrast. The things of which you were ashamed that lead to death, but being slaves to Christ, these things, these good fruits lead to everlasting life. Eternal life, living with Him, because why? Going back to the very beginning, circling back to it, we died as Christ died, were buried as He was buried in baptism, and we rise out of that as He arose from the grave on the third day. He died and conquered death so that we have the hope and the promise of living with Him. And then 23, here's that statement I believe many of us are so familiar with. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin... Payment. I picture an employee drawing a salary from an employer. You get paid for the work that you do. So what's the payment for sin? Death. But then notice the gift of God is eternal life. Notice he doesn't call that a wage. He calls it a gift. What's the difference between a gift and a wage? I mean, a wage is earned. 
A wage is earned, a gift is given. But every gift comes with a price. And here's what I mean by that. Any gift that we receive, I think about birthdays, Christmas, whatever the occasion might be, that is given to us at no cost or no obligation in some cases to us, but somewhere it cost someone something to acquire that gift. When we talk about salvation, that's the gift. The cost of that gift was the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let us be thankful for those spiritual blessings. And as we think about that, let us turn once more to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 4 through 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Jeremy, would you mind to read for us there again? For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. All right, thank you. So notice again he says it is impossible for those who were what? Once enlightened, that is those who had obeyed the truth and have tasted the heavenly gift, that is salvation, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, that is receiving the promise of the Spirit, Acts chapter 2, and have tasted the good word of God. Now notice we have all of that and he says, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Why? What are they doing? Crucifying again the Son of God. What's he saying? It would be better for them to have never obeyed than to have obeyed than to turn away from it. So when we come back to Romans chapter 6, and we read that especially in verse 23... The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, what? Is eternal life. Let us think about what went into making that possible. And once we become partakers of that, let us never turn away. There's something else that we need to think about. If it were not possible, as some contend, for a Christian to fall away from the faith, then why are there so many warnings about it in the writings of the New Testament? Absolutely, in case you didn't hear that, Second Peter 2 and verse 21 is what uh, Luther was just referring to there. So let us be thankful, be thankful for what Jesus came 
and did for us. All right, our time is almost up. Uh, do we have any final remarks, questions, comments on any of this? Get the last part of verse 23. It says, the gift of God is in Christ Jesus. In Christ. Absolutely. Thank you, Milton. In Christ. So to receive that gift, we have to do what? We have to meet the conditions. All right. Well, if there is nothing else, we'll go ahead and conclude here and we'll look next week in chapter 7 and we'll look at those contrasts that he's going to make between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. Uh, not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after next, the 29th, uh, I will be out of town again. Uh, Doug has tentatively agreed to fill in in my absence, but after that, uh, when I get back and we resume, uh, we will go on into chapter 8. So uh, thank you for your attention and stay safe.